evening we have, and I just got a chance to chat with him for a few minutes, um, Kevin Penner is going to join us up here and jump into Mark chapter 8. Uh, I asked if, the only way I'd, I know that name a little bit more lately because of uh, the Aurora name and the state school board run and some of those things, but he has confessed that he's not related or he doesn't know that he's related to them. He's just a guy that's in ministry and youth ministry, has taught a little bit, um, taught art, I think, a little bit for a couple years and has been in ministry for, for a while as well. And he is, as I hope you guys are, a willing soul to do, do the Lord's work. Let's uh, give him a welcome and a round of applause as he comes up and teaches us today. Good morning. Thank you all. If you have your Bibles, this does not come up. If you have your Bibles, open it to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 26 today. All right. We'll talk a little bit about Mark. We'll pray and then we'll get into the passage. So you guys have been in Mark for a while now, right? You all are familiar with the book a little bit. So I'm assuming you've noticed the immediacy with which Mark's speaking, especially in Jesus's early ministry, but constantly he's repeating immediately Jesus went out, immediately Jesus went out, immediately Jesus went out, right? Mark's a very, very fast gospel. So it's a great one to get started with. Uh, Mark and John are a little bit shorter than Matthew and Luke and a little less detailed, but you also might have noticed that Mark is not in chronological order, right? You've got the separation of Jesus in kind of the Galilee region, and then Jesus in Jerusalem, and then in his, uh, his final days in Jerusalem, right? You guys noticed that a little bit. Okay, good. Got a couple of head nods. It's early. Do you guys drink coffee? Have you had coffee? Okay, not had coffee yet. That lets me know where we are. All right, so let's pray. We'll get into the passage. Uh, we've got a couple of seemingly separate stories in chapter 8, but they all actually connect, and we'll see how they connect at the end of verse 26. All right, sound good? Yes, no? You can feel free to respond. It's okay. Verbally, I mean verbally, other than head nodding, I got a thumbs up that's different than head nodding. I'll take it. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into the passage. Father, um, we thank you that you desire to be with us. You desire uh, for us to know you, and that you've given us your word so that we can do that. Father, as we look at these passages, let them not become um, something that's dull or something that we've heard before or, or even um, grow contemptuous of it. But Father, uh, stir in our hearts an affection for you. Help us to see Jesus in these passages, and help us to glorify him as we go about our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to get started. Um, kind of the first story here uh, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We'll go through that. We'll talk about it a little bit. We'll go to the next, talk about it a little bit, and work our way through the passage that way. Make sense? All right, so... Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he being Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So, in those days, right? Let's get started in just the first, first verse. In those days, when Jesus was where? Do you guys know where Jesus was? 
I should have created a slide with maps. 2020 hindsight now would help. So Jesus is in uh, kind of northern Israel in an area called Galilee. All right. How many of you, you all have heard of the Sea of Galilee, right? So I actually got to be there when I was in seminary. It's a beautiful area. It is not a sea by any means. It is a big lake. So when you see Sea of Galilee in Scripture, don't think uh, Atlantic Ocean. It's not even the Mediterranean Sea. It is a big lake. You can literally see the shore from the other side. So previously in Mark, when we talked about Jesus walking on the water and they see that there was no boat on the other side, you guys see how that works and connects because you can actually see the other shore? Yes? No? Okay, so that gives kind of context to where they are. They're in the wilderness, and it's again that a crowd had followed him. Why are crowds following Jesus? Because he's performing miracles, right? What is Jesus constantly doing? He's healing sick. He's performing miracles. He's basically reading people's minds and telling them what they're thinking about and telling them where it's right and wrong, right? You've seen that all through the book of Mark up to this point. And it's again that a, get, a crowd is gathered around. And he called his disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. The Greek word for compassion is that his stomach, his bowels inside of him are moving for these people. How many of you have had an emotional experience for somebody where your intestines, your insides are actually moving for that person? It's not even the heart, it's down even lower. It's in the gut. It's a gut feeling. Anyone felt that? Yes. That's the compassion that he's having for this crowd. They've been with him three days, and Jesus could easily say, well, I've been in the wilderness for 40 days with nothing to eat. You weaklings, only three days. But instead, no, he has compassion on the crowd, right? Because Jesus is compassionate, fair? Yes, all right. So Jesus has compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will have come from far away. So he's looking at this crowd. He's saying, they're so hungry, if they were to even leave, they're just going to go ahead and faint, right? And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. So Jesus is taking care of their physical needs, right? We see a Jesus that's compassionate. We see a Jesus that's taking care of people's physical needs and thinking about their physical needs as they're hungry for literal bread. Yes? So that's where we are so far. Everyone tracking with me. I know we're going slow. That's okay. It's good to go slow through a passage and just kind of read it sometimes. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Does, does any of this sound familiar to you all? There's a big crowd gathered around Jesus of a couple thousand people. They're all hungry, and Jesus is telling the disciples to feed them, and they don't have enough food. Does this sound familiar at all? Yes, because you read it in Mark chapter 6. Only that time it was 5,000 people, and it was 5,000 men of Jewish descent, right? This crowd is a little different. This crowd is Gentile, showing that Jesus come well, not entirely Gentile, but this is a more Gentile region, so showing that Jesus is coming to Jews and Gentiles. How many, of here, how many in here are Jewish? 
None of you should raise your hand. We're all Gentiles. We get to reap the benefits of Jesus coming to Gentiles, yes? Yes, okay, thank you. Some people are waking up, the coffee's kicking in. I'll take it. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And they, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. All right. So Jesus is repeating a miracle that he did in Mark 6. So you've got Jesus, you've got three groups of people. Jesus, you've got the crowd, which is a different crowd, and you've got the disciples. And the disciples have been with Jesus all this time, and they're looking and they're going, well, what are we going to do to feed them? They had seen Jesus perform miracles on a daily basis, and they're still questioning. And it's easy to look at contempt with the disciples and say, Psh, you foolish disciples, if I'd have been with Jesus, I would have said the exact same thing. And so would you. See, you all are around the things of God and the things of Jesus on a daily basis. And by God's grace, you are. That you're in a school that values the Bible and values Jesus and values what he's doing in your life. And as we're going through life like the disciples, it's easy to say, oh, Jesus, you've done these miracles all this time. The fact that I even believe in you is a miracle. But for this next thing, I just don't know if you can handle it. How many of you have been there? How many of you are there? I've been there. All throughout the Old Testament, you see it time and time again that the Israelites had seen God do all these supernatural things. And they'd even set up pillars of remembrance, these big stone pillars to say, hey, look at that pillar. Remember when God did this? And we do that in our lives where we're like, hey, I remember when Jesus did this, but recently, just haven't heard from him. Haven't seen him. I remember when, I remember when I was passionate about it, but now it's, it's far off. It's gone. But it's not, because Jesus is still working, he's still moving. And so, this passage is reminiscent of Mark 6, right? And Mark 6 is reminiscent of God providing manna in the desert. You all are familiar with that in Exodus, yes? When the Israelites left Egypt, and they were in a desert and had nothing to eat, so God provides manna from heaven. This passage is not actually reminiscent of Exodus. If you, you all have your Bibles, yes? I want you to write in your Bible, if you have your pen or your journal, if you feel more comfortable that way, 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. All right? And you can go there if you would like, but you don't have to since you wrote it down. I'll just read it for you. So at this point, Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, is the prophet of the time. Um, and a couple of people are out in a wilderness. And you'll see a very similar kind of scene set up that parallels with Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 42, it says, A man came from Baal 
uh, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in, the, in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. So you've got a man bringing the man of God food, and you've got other men who are hungry, a group of men, right? Verse 43, it says, but his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. See, Jesus is the better Elisha. Elisha had twice the Holy Spirit, twice the portion of the Holy Spirit as Elijah, right? Yes, no. Old Testament scholars in here, yes. Jesus is the better Elisha, right? John the Baptist was Elijah setting the way for Jesus. Jesus is showing that he is the better Elisha. He is the true Elisha, right? So that's what this passage is about. And you've got the disciples still mirroring this idea of unfaithfulness in Jesus, like we so often do today. And it closes with, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we've got this supernatural event the disciples don't know what to do, even though they've seen Jesus moving before in the exact same manner. And then he performs the miracle, and they kind of go in a boat. Doesn't have any more context after that, right? Doesn't say that the disciples believed more. Doesn't say that this, the disciples even asked Jesus about it. They just got into a boat and left, right? And so now we're moving on to this next scene. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, being Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? It says, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. So you have this Gentile crowd. You've got the disciples with Jesus. Jesus performs a miracle. They get into a boat. And then you have the Pharisees. We all are familiar with the Pharisees, right? Yeah. And the Pharisees, it says, seeking, a, seeking from him a sign from heaven to, tempt, to test or tempt him. The word is actually tempt in the Greek. What has Jesus been doing this whole time? He's been performing miracles. He's been healing the sick. He's been feeding people by supernatural means right? And these Pharisees are coming and they're like, okay, fine. Give us a sign. You got to imagine Jesus is going, what are you talking about? Right? I mean, you, you actually see it in the text. In verse 12, it says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Do we imagine Jesus as being exasperated? Not generally, right? But it's easy for us to even have the Pharisees' attitude or be blind like the disciples and say, Jesus, you've been doing all this stuff, but uh, give us a new sign. See, the Pharisees didn't actually want a sign because they knew what Jesus had been doing. And even in, earlier in Mark, they attributed all of Jesus' good works to whom? I think somebody said it. To Satan, right? So even if he gives them a sign, which he's been doing all this time, and he's been proving that he's the Messiah, they're still taking that and going, oh, well, it's just evil. 
He's just doing it from evil power because he's not coming in the way we want or the way we expect. So it's kind of a a break in the text because now we're getting back to the disciples again. And then we're going to see kind of how this all wraps up together in verse 26. Uh, Move into verse 14. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. They took one loaf of bread onto a boat that they could easily get to shore in in less than 20 minutes. Jesus isn't talking about the bread, is he? But the disciples are going, we only brought one loaf. What are you talking about? The leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. What he's talking about is the leaven of unbelief. That is, unbelief and cynicism kind of enter into our, our hearts and our lives when we're encountering godly things that it starts to spread around. Leaven in, in the Bible, we all know what leaven is, right? Yeast. And how when it gets introduced to dough, it spreads throughout entirely, even just the tiniest amount. So to keep bread holy, to keep it separate, in the Old Testament, they would not put leaven in it for any bread that was offered as a sacrifice. Yes? Yes. Awesome. Yes. Got a couple more yeses. We're waking up. Awesome. So, the leaven of the Pharisees is unbelief, and the disciples are going, but we only have one loaf. You think they're not believing yet? So that's what Jesus is talking about. He's warning about the unbelief that they're already experiencing. All right? And I love that they discuss with one another that they have no bread. Notice they don't take it to Jesus. They're too afraid to actually look at Jesus with their questions of like, hey, what what are you talking about with this leaven? They're discussing and grumbling with themselves. Like, I imagine Peter and Andrew were, I mean, they're brothers. Peter probably looked at Andrew and was like, you didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus is going, it's not about that. What what did we just experience? But Jesus feeding 4,000 people with a couple of loaves. So a supernatural miracle followed by natural responses and natural ignorance, right? Okay, and so Jesus, in verse 17, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, twelve. And seven of the 4,000, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So they could have taken their questions to Jesus. Instead, they bicker among themselves. And we do this all the time. And do you think Jesus is unaware of our questions? No. It's okay to take your questions to God. It's okay to take your questions to Jesus. You see it all throughout Scripture. It's never a rebuke when it's an honest question of God, what are you doing? That's what most of the Psalms are. David's confessing like, God, I don't know where you are. All my enemies seem to be abounding. 
everything around me seems to be falling apart, but I'm going to trust in you, right? You could probably say that's around 90% of the Psalms. So Jesus, knowing what they're talking about, corrects them. He rebukes them, uh, not because of their failure to grasp the warning, but their failure to understand the meaning of his presence with him. That ultimately, it's not even about physical bread that he could break, but it's about his broken body and his bloodshed for us, that he is the true bread of life, right? All right, so moving on, they get out of the boat. In verse 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he, when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked and he said, I see people, but they're like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. And his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So you've got these four different stories that seem very, very separate. But the last one ties them all together. And here's why. You see this, this blind man in Bethsaida that his, his friends bring him to Jesus. So obviously his friends heard that Jesus was healing people, right? He was healing the sick and the lame and the hurting and the broken and the deaf and the mute and the blind. And so his friends are like, hey, you need Jesus, which you as friends might need to do for some people in your life. Yes? Yes, constantly. And you might need somebody to do for you. And that's fair. That's what this, that's what Christianity is about, is having accountability with one another, all right? So this blind man who is led by his friends, and his friends are begging him to touch him. So the blind man's not even begging Jesus. It's his friends. In verse 23, I find particularly gross but looking at a couple of commentaries, apparently it was very common practice at the time for physicians to spit into blind people's eyes. That was a method. I'm not saying that it is a method you should try. In narrative scripture especially, there's what we call descriptive and prescriptive texts. Descriptive describes what happens. Prescriptives describe what we should do about it. Don't go around spitting in each other's eyes. Fair? Jesus did it. What would Jesus do? No, not the answer. Not the answer. The point isn't that he was spitting in Jesus' eyes. The point is actually the fact that he does it gradually. Could Jesus have healed this man immediately? Absolutely. He didn't even have to snap his fingers. He didn't have to say a prayer. He could have thought a thought, and the man could have been healed. So this man whose friends bring him to Jesus is going, all of a sudden this dude is spitting in my eyes. And Jesus asks him, do you see anything? And he looks up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So obviously this man had had sight before. Yes? Because he knows what people look like, and he knows what trees are. Imagine being this guy 2,000 years ago. Did he have the modern conveniences that we have today for people that have disabilities? It's, 
to my knowledge, there is no Greek Braille. There is especially no Greek Braille on the drive-up ATM, and I don't know why there's Braille on the drive-up at all, because they're blind, but that's beside the point. Some of you will get that joke later. This guy had had sight. Imagine what he must have resigned himself to. His friends are leading him around. For those of you who like control, how humiliating is that? My mentor uh, has MS, which has affected his spinal column to the point where he's wheelchair bound. He basically has to rely on his wife. And it's so easy to fall into despair, to fall into resignment of this is it. This is all I'll know the rest of my life. And we even do that spiritually, right? When it's been a while since we've, you know, experienced Jesus or worship hasn't felt like anything or really our prayers seem like they're just bouncing off the ceiling. It doesn't seem like there's a God listening or, or answering. This man must have had some of that, right? That his friends are leading him around. It's not like he's the one that took the initiative to go to Jesus. His friends had to take him. And so Jesus spits in his eyes and gradually he starts to see. Imagine the joy in his heart he must have felt. That even seeing people like trees, that he's starting to see a little bit. I wonder if for a moment he thought, this is it. I'll take this. I'll take this and I'll go. I'll rejoice with just this. Jesus doesn't have to heal me fully because he's healed me enough. It's just enough. It's enough that I can see people. I don't have to rely on my friends anymore. I'm not going to constantly bump into things. It's enough. And we do that too. But we don't go to Jesus with it. We tend to go to the world, right? Like, oh man, I'm going through a lot, but it's so easy to scroll through Instagram. And that just takes it off enough. It takes my mind off of things enough. There are other things that we can go to. We can go to relationships. Talk to everybody else but Jesus, like the disciples did. Or we can test Jesus. We don't actually trust Him. We're just constantly testing Him. Like, Jesus, if you're real, do this. We know He is. That's why we even asked in the first place. Our if-then prayer already betrays our belief. But Jesus wasn't content with that. He says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. You've got this contrast of a physically blind man and spiritually blind people all throughout these passages. The disciples have been with Jesus for a long time now. They've seen him done, do multiple miracles. And going back to, to the boat, in verse 18, it says, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? You're constantly in it. You're the ones that see me on a daily basis. You have access to me all the time. And you're just as spiritually blind as this physically blind man is. And that's the point of all these passages. 
that together you're seeing these stories of Jesus slowly revealing himself like he does with us. Like, if, if you're in the midst of Christianity and you're going, I know Jesus lived a perfect life. He was fully God and fully man. He died on the cross in my place. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he's fully God and fully man. I believe that and I know that. But there's all this other stuff that I don't get. Like, it seems like my prayers aren't being answered. Or it seems like I'm trying to do this and it's not working and it's really hard. You're not alone. We're just like the disciples. We're being with Jesus. We, we know and we understand and we believe. And then there's the living it out that's difficult. It's costly. It's, it's daily in the grind that you're going, I don't know. I don't know. It's that doubt that starts to creep in, but we put that doubt away and look to the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He did die for our, our sins, and he did raise from the grave. we got to teach ourselves the gospel every day. I have to teach myself the gospel every day. If I don't, it's so easy to become blind again, like this man in the passage. Or like the disciples, where we see this gradual understanding of Jesus and our lives play out over time. That's a process with a big theological word. Do you guys know what the big theological word is? Sanctification. Where we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Right? And that's also discipleship. That's the goal of our lives. That is every day, regardless of what we're doing, whether it's math or science or history or playing sports or in a relationship or whatever it is, where we're constantly asking, this, asking ourselves the question, am I mirroring Jesus? Am I looking more and more like him? Am I responding in the ways he would respond without spitting in people's eyes? So if you're in the midst of that right now, just take courage. Take heart in the fact that Jesus gradually reveals himself. For some people, it's instantaneous. And praise God for that. Some people you'll talk to later on in life or you'll talk to right now that as soon as they met Jesus, as soon as they believed, temptation for sin was gone. And some people, it's a little bit more gradual. And if so, that's fine. That's what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. It's what Jesus is still doing now. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you have compassion on us, Jesus, that um, you don't just desire to feed us physically, but you desire to feed us spiritually, that you are ultimately um, the bread of life, and that by coming to you, we can have a relationship with you where you want us to be part of your kingdom. You want us to be part of what you're doing uh, for, your good, for your good, for your glory, and for our joy. So, Father, be with us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.